Welcome to Drinks, Jokes, and Storytelling, the ESPN for all things comedy, with your hosts, Mark Riccadonna and Richie Byrne. And now, grab a drink and welcome, Folks, Mark Riccadonna and Drink, Richie Jokes, Byrne. and Storytelling. I'm your host, Mark Riccadonna, and with me, as always, Richie Byrne, and our new producer, Big Cajona. The Big Cajona. What's up, Christian? We got a great show today. Man. We have a very special we have a very guest. we say we have a special guest every time. This today we really mean it. This guy is legendary. He's a legend. And, I'm excited and to bring him out. Can't wait to get him out here. And he was one of the stars of your show. The, yes, the, Radio Gods. Radio Gods. And I'm I can't wait to bring him out. Let's just cut to the chase and get to him, folks. Paul Provenza's in the house. Hello, Paul. How are you guys? What are we drinking today? Uh, <laughs> our drink of choice. <laughs> I am going with the old Jameson. <laughs> I have to correct you. You referred to me as star of that pilot, and that is not only unfair but inappropriate because the real star of that pilot is the brilliant Mr. Rick Overton. And and just working with the genius, comic genius of Rick Overton, all you have to do is get in his slipstream and just follow along. <laughs> <laughs> He's like the Richie Byrne of this podcast. Yes, yes. I just I hold the... on to those tail. <laughs> Tailcoats and ride it like a ski. <laughs> Overton's a fucking genius. We're hoping and, to get uh, him next birthday week. Birthday today too, so happy birthday, Rick Overton! Happy oh, birthday, really? Rick Overton! Look at that. There we go. All right. I, uh, <laughs> so the way we start every show is we start with a drink. A drink. So Paul, let's ask you first. What are you drinking? Uh, I'm drinking a lovely 1990, no, 2019 <laughs> train wreck. <laughs> I love All it. right, that's a first for us. Yeah. Wow. Three like years it. on the air, we finally got someone to just light it up and go. Light I don't up. know why we didn't think of that sooner. Fire it up. Well, the 420 I'll, I'll show. <laughs> well, so we we you know we weren't in our regular place, and before we used to be in our home studio where we were home, and uh, so this time we're on the Jersey Shore right now in Brick, New Jersey. So we decided to be like a couple of Jersey Shore degenerates, and we bought little airplane bottles of booze that we could sneak <laughs> on the beach. I picked a nice Jameson. The alcoholic on a budget. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> when you're on the go and you don't have time to pour it in a cup. <laughs> Jameson, caskmates. And I'm doing Patty's Old yeah. Irish Whiskey. Nice. There we, go. there we go. All right. And then the second thing we do is we tell a joke. We tell us a joke. And who could we have better on the show? Oh, my God. One of the producers of the Aristocrats, right. uh, Paul Provenza. Paul, you actually said something about jokes that inspired me. Because I used to get upset after shows when people would tell me jokes. And then I heard you describe people telling jokes. It's like jazz. I'll let you talk because you did it much better than me well, yeah, you know, the, thing about, the thing about like street jokes party jokes you know is that they're like they're sort of like american standards you know and uh when anybody tells them you kind of get their variation on that standard and uh uh and that's where that came from and it's just uh you know some people are good at it some people suck at it but the jokes themselves are standards man some of them are beautiful <laughs> which one of your what's one of your favorites well, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to be one of my favorites, but I think this is interesting. This is one of the, the first jokes that I remember hearing that was kind of dirty, but not dirty. So it stuck with me as a little kid. And also I was amazed that 
so many people didn't get it. And it, so that joke stuck with me for my whole life. And it's a, it's a kid's joke. It's perfect. <laughs> it's um, why do mice have such small balls? Why do, why mice, do mice have, have such, such small balls? Why? Because very few of them can dance. <laughs> <laughs> it's great, it. right? It's, 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 it's dirty, but it's not. You think right. it's dirty, but it's not. It's about, you know, it's a great yeah. joke. That joke, like, it operates on so many different levels, and not everybody gets it or gets it right away and all that sort of shit. And so even as a little kid, that joke was like, huh. Yeah, that's an interesting <laughs> joke. Me. I'm going to tell the boys. Did you ever hear the ACDC song, Big Balls? That's what I, it is. It's, it's not Spinal Tap? It, no, it's ACDC. <laughs> and it's a take on that where, you know, he's talking about different parties that he's gone to, but it's, he's, I've got I've big got balls. I've got big yeah. balls. She's got uh -huh. big balls. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> so uh, you you said you have an Andrew Dice Clay story because yes. you were doing the so funny. There's actually a thematic connection, and this this is completely random. <laughs> uh, yeah, just these guys mentioned Andrew Dice Clay earlier, and I said, oh, I, I got a funny Andrew Dice Clay thing. Uh, uh, well, funny to me anyway. It was just that um, you know when he uh, he started playing Vegas. Uh, I hadn't seen him outside of the comedy store. I never saw him in a big venue, you know. And uh, I happened to be in Vegas. So I was like, I'm going to go catch Andrew Dice Clay. And uh, I really wanted to see how it played in Vegas and to see what a big room, you know, a couple thousand people full of Andrew Dice Clay fans really felt like because there was all, yeah. all that kind of around him and everything. And, you know, I, I wasn't a huge fan of Andrew Dice Clay. I, mean, I wouldn't say that, you know, he was like my, my favorite comic, but I did feel that. A lot of it, a lot of the controversy and everything was overblown because a lot of people didn't really understand that he was doing a character, which might be, you know, a fucking cunt hair away from actually Andrew Dice Clay. <laughs> Who knows? But um, <laughs> I just felt like the, this, this just sort of typified Andrew Dice Clay for me. It was like he's sitting in there and I watched about half an hour and I was like, all right, I get it. You know, this was interesting and uh, I'm going to go do something else. And as I'm walking, <laughs> I got, I got bored. Fucking <laughs> out of the theater. You hear now. You can hear it as you know the, the audio fading, like in a movie. Just as I'm walking out, the door opens, and I hear him say, "Do you ever notice when you come out of the shower, sometimes you still got soap hidden behind your balls?" Click as the doors close. <laughs> the perfect my Andrew Dice Clay movie scene moment. Cinematic. <laughs> <laughs> Now, you've been you've been doing comedy. You've been part of like almost every scene. Like yeah, you really like you started really young, right, bigger. Paul? You were, you were seventeen when you started. Is yeah, that right? I started wow. in the late seventies. Yeah. Wow. And I up, I came up with uh, you know that that first sort of graduating class of what became the comedy boom. You know, I came up with uh, uh, Jay Leno was the MC on my first audition night at the wow, Improv in New York. Uh, and he was still commuting from Boston. He would drive from Boston to wow. get stage time in, in New York City. And he, he was a mechanic at an exotic car place. So I would, I would show up at the club and they'd be like a Rolls Royce or a Bentley double parked out front or an XKE or something, you know, and it was Jay just going in to do a set. But um, so I came with, you know, Jay Leno was was the house MC for most of the time. Uh, uh, Elaine Boozler, Franken and Davis, Larry David wow. when he was doing stand up. Um, 
Gilbert Gottfried was actually there Gilbert. already. Uh, he was young himself, but he still felt like an old Jew. Uh, <laughs> I uh, saw an episode. It's Boozler and speaking of Boozler and uh, and uh, Gilbert. I saw uh, they were both on Night Court and at the same show, oh, yeah. the same day. Like, well, she she played a court clerk who was blind and really mean. And Bull uh, fell in love with her. But Gilbert was like the young, hot lawyer. Like the young, <laughs> hot shot lawyer. And I'm like, young and hot is nothing what I would describe Gilbert, Gilbert. as. Well, yeah, Gilbert is uh, he is a one of a kind. If I, I, I vowed once that if I ever had like a, a late night talk show again, I would uh, have um, Gilbert on as the movie, re- movie reviewer. <laughs> or just let Gilbert talk about it movies and you don't have to write a word you just let him show up <laughs> he i got to work with him and my family was with me and i was so nervous for him to like meet my family and i called you actually that week and was like i'm working with gilbert like you know whatever and uh i went over and he was you know he i he drove like two hours with one of the acts and they said he didn't say one word <laughs> he got in the car like, with wow. and he got in the car with Angie and my kids, and he talked the whole time. He really? talked to my kids the entire weekend. And then when at the on Sunday, I helped him pack his car, pack the luggage in the car for him, and he's like, you know, you're not going to bring your kids down to say goodbye? And I was like, <laughs> he's like the nicest guy in the world. <laughs> oh, he's, he's, he's a doll. He's, you know, he's so damaged, and uh, but his <laughs> wife died has, you know, just, like, made him a real human being. It's a beautiful thing to see. And he's fucking great with his kids. In fact, once, <laughs> when he was doing the uh, um, uh, set list, we did a series of set lists for UK television, and we shot some of them in L.A., and I flew a, a Gilbert out to do it. And he had never heard of the show. He didn't know what it was. And um, I told his wife, I said, look, you know I'm the biggest Gilbert Gottfried fan in the world. I just trust me. He's doing this. There's no discussion. So he comes out to do it. And uh, he was fucking amazing. Uh, but anyway, I said to him then, I said, Gilbert, I said, um, you know, congratulations on the new kid. He had a second kid then. He goes, thanks. Yeah, it's really great. They're really fun. And I said, uh, are they are they funny? Are they, you know, are your kids funny? And he went, I prefer their earlier work. <laughs> <laughs> You know, everyone nowadays talks about Thomas Edison's testicle experiment. Uh, That's where he used to be able to light his testicles up. And uh, that was the original light bulb. He originally just shoved an electrical wire up his ass, and his testicles lit up. Which was fine for a while, but when you're trying to read, and his testicles... It's so fucking funny. Wow. I love this. Oh my god! Wow. So wait, tell tell us uh, for anybody who doesn't know setlist, fill them in. I, that's one of the first times you and I got the hang as you were doing setlist at the uh, 
the Laughing Skull Comedy Festival, and you and I oh, just hit it off there. Down in, yeah, no, Setless is a great show. It was created by Troy Conrad, a brilliant uh, comedian, uh, photographer. Yeah. He's doing amazing photography. He's the house photographer at the comedy store now. Uh, his work is just beautiful. He's just an all-around beautiful human being and a real artist. And he came up with this idea once. He called me. He goes, listen, I got this idea. I'm just getting it up on its feet. He goes, but I think you'd be really good at it. He goes, would you like to come down and do it? And I said, well, well, what is it? And he said, I'll write a set list and I give it to you right before you go on stage and you improvise the set that goes with it in front of the audience. Wow. And I said, that is the worst fucking idea I ever heard in my life. <laughs> I'll be there. So uh, it's I went and did it and I was, it was amazing, man, because it, like, you know, it's the closest you'll ever come as a comic. It's the closest you'll ever come to the first time you ever stood on stage. Right. Uh, you have no idea what you do. And then the whole object of it, it's all very Zen. You know, it's all about just getting out of your own way and letting your talent rise to the occasion for better or worse, you know, <laughs> but as I, was, as I was watching, you know, the couple of people that went on before me, I was looking at the audience. I never saw this kind of an energy in an audience. They were like on the edge of their seats, like they were at a sporting event. It was so cool. And then I got up and did it. And just so much was going on and stuff was coming out of me that in a million years, I never would have thought of that was killing. And I was like, this is just an extraordinary phenomenon. Yeah. And I myself, every comic on earth has to experience this because it kind of lays bare all the assets and all the liabilities that you have as a, as a writer, as a performer, as a human being, it's fucking unbelievable. Right. So I immediately, I came off stage and went right backstage. And I said, Troy, please do me the honor of partnering with me and let's take this thing around the world and see what we can do with it. Because every comic on earth has to try this. And he, and he said, let's do it. And then within a couple of months, we took it to the Edinburgh fringe festival uh, because I knew that the, the comics over there are a lot more they're generally really adventurous and they like challenges and yeah. and and they just they took to it like it was no tomorrow and within three or four months we had a deal to do uh 14 episodes for british television wow and we shot them in london in san francisco right outside of san francisco actually to make it really easy for robin to come and do it <laughs> and um yeah robin did it wow uh the people who've done it amazing yeah. uh, and then we shot them in los angeles and you know i mean we had everybody on this tv series from first of all a lot of people who are celebrities really well known in australia and england but as far as the americans go we had everybody from maria bamford to robin williams to eddie pepitone to uh um, Hannibal Buress, Greg Proops, um, T.J. Miller, Kamel Nanjiani. Uh, I mean, the list just goes on and on. Man. And uh, it was great. But we haven't been able to sell it here in the United States. And we already have 14 pre-existing shows that we've kept from the airwaves here. There are people that wanted to license them to you know, broadcast them here. And uh, we said, no, we've been holding out for somebody to say, we'll take those old episodes and produce new ones here in the American market. Yeah. They... But it hasn't happened. Mulroney would be great for that. That oh, guy. Phenomenal. I just worked with him. Did, the people who have done it live, because we've taken it around the world. I've taken it to festivals all around the world. And, you know, through the course of that, you know, Roseanne did it. Eddie Izzard did it. Tim Minchin did it. Uh, wow. um, oh, God. I can't, I, even, off the I top can't, I can't understand why you're having trouble um, selling that in America. It's, I know. It's, it just it seems like yeah, a home run was, to me. You know, well, because it's, it's art. It was such an easy sale in the UK because they really have an affinity for doing comedy, stand-up comedy-driven 
formats and variations on the theme. Like in primetime television over there, there's all these panel shows and all these shows mm -hmm. where comics can just show up and be funny. Um, but here in America, there's none of that. In fact, here in America, there is no stand-up on TV until 11 o'clock at night. Yeah, yeah, well, that's you know? kind of wild. So there's yeah. always been a real, a real prejudice against the stand-up format on television. Where that really changed, you know, I mean, you could see them on the uh, talk shows and things like that, which went on throughout history. I mean, I certainly cut my teeth watching all the old greats on, you know, the Ed Sullivan Show and and the Tonight Show and all that. Yeah. But other than that, stand-up really has never had a place on American television until cable came through and then all these cable networks that wanted to do some kind of original programming comedy was hot at the time live comedy was hot at the time and they were looking for really cheap cost-effective programming to do that was really low risk and so all of a sudden there was stand-up comedy everywhere once you got onto the cable yeah and and they could pay uh, the comedians with but, a sandwich so <laughs> <laughs> oh, but oh, it's, what's interesting is over the years since that happened, since that explosion happened, it's faded away further and further and further. I mean, even HBO doesn't do that many stand-up specials anymore. They only do some big stars. It's pretty much all gone to uh, Netflix, Netflix now. Netflix, yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, stand-up just isn't really a thing that American television responds to. Uh, it's really interesting because it's a really distinctly and uniquely American art form, just like jazz. Again, there's the analogy. I mean, all the Brits and all the comics around the world that I've met from Germany, from South Africa, from France, I mean, they all learned it from watching Americans. Yeah. You know? So it's it's, a, it's kind of a fucked up thing. And, you know, speaking of panel shows, like you mentioned, the panel shows was a place where comics could go. You're kind of one of the, uh, the groundbreakers of the podcast world because you had the show Comics Only. You hosted a show, Comics Only, which is basically what mm -hmm. every podcast is. is now. Yeah. Yeah, to a certain degree, except what, with Comics Only, the whole premise of Comics Only was that all uh, every comic I've ever met in my entire life, you know, here in America, uh, they all watched The Tonight Show and they didn't care about anything but the stand-up comics. So we said, well, what if we do a Tonight Show-like talk show? and not have actors and musicians on and just have stand-ups. So that was the premise of Comics Only. But I left it uh, at the time, you know, it was pretty early in my development. It was my the first TV project I was ever, you know, fronting uh, and had any say in. Um, but where I was at in my development, it seemed like a smart thing to do at the time to give the comics the options of uh, really, they could either really talk, have conversations like we're having yeah. now, or do material, whichever made them the most comfortable. So unfortunately, a lot of people chose to do material because most of them were really green at the time too. But, you know, we're talking Jeff Foxworthy, Alex Jenneret, Goldthwait. I mean, we're talking about a lot of people over the course of that, you know, 165 shows that we did. But then, like five, six years ago, I started doing The Green Room with Paul that on Showtime, and that really was a more sophisticated extension of exactly the same idea. When I started doing comics only, I thought, well, this is the thing I want to do, which is I want people to feel what it's like to be amongst stand-up comedians, not just watch comedians, but also to be part of the community, because yeah. that was the most revelatory thing to me in my life. When I ended up hanging around with other comics, it was like, you know, a dog being introduced to a dog park for the first time. It's like, everybody's <laughs> here. They're all me. They all understand me. <laughs> we all get 
each other. We all, you know, I sniffed asses, basically. For, you know, <laughs> that hasn't changed um, in no. the comedy community. No, it really hasn't. <laughs> no. We're still well, sniffing I mean, asses. So there's, you know, definitely something you can separate the world into people who do stand-up comedy and people who don't because it is a different universe. It's just a different mindset. A different, it's like our own language our own sort of understanding, our own view of the world is a little bit different. No matter how different the comedians are, we're automatically together as opposed to the rest of the world. Yeah. So I always felt like, so, you know, I always felt like I wanted to somehow translate the experience of just hanging out with smart, funny people. Yeah. And I, that was sort of the seeds of comics only back in the late eighties. But when I got around to doing the green room, it, it was a much more. It was real... comics only on steroids, really, though. That. What's that? It was kind of comics only on steroids. Well, uh, what I did was, you know, comics only. I told you I let a lot of people decide if they wanted to do material or they wanted to chit chat or they wanted to just work off the cuff. Um, uh, but on, on the green room, we just stripped away as much artifice as we could. There yeah. was no format. There was no agenda. There was absolutely no script. Every show started in mid conversation which I actually did at the tape. We refused to tape in a studio. So yeah. we taped in a, a huge dance club where we could create our own intimate space. Um, uh, there were no, well, we served out. Your... We had a party before everybody was let in. So everybody's out at a party. The comics got together, started talking, and slowly we let the audience just filter in. So they were walking into a conversation already in progress. Because wow. wow. I, wanted, I wanted to eliminate a show beginning, you know, come out, do a monologue, introduce a guest, whatever. I wanted to eliminate as much of that as I could. And in fact, the audience at the green room tapings were Comedians. all, uh, it's funny because when the budget came in, there was this, you know, certain amount of money allotted for audience services, which is where you have to hire services to come and get people who are going to fill the audience. Uh, and uh, I said, well, take that out right away because the whole audience was people from my own personal invite list and Barbara Roman, my producing partner's invite list. So everybody that was actually at the taping are actually people who you all are often in green rooms. Yeah. You know, so we really strive to just strip away as much artifice and make it as close to a real experience of hanging out with comics after a show, before a show, not giving a shit about anything. And, uh, um, and it was really nice because the comics really, they let their guards down like crazy and they were funny. You know, they knew an audience was there, but they were funny in a way that wasn't so much performing for a crowd as the way they're funny when there's a bunch of people hanging out at a party. Or something. And something you know? that I really loved about the show was sometimes you would just turn to the audience and all of a sudden you're like, oh, shit, that's a famous comic. And you would just bring them into the conversation and you would it, it, to me, it was like when you're being funny in front of comics, you're way you're you're different funny than you are when you're being funny in front of average people and when your audience right. was filled with comedians it was kind of like yeah. everything was juiced up and it was like oh man yeah, that, that was the intention behind it it was we really wanted it to feel like something that wasn't happening for a tv audience and we even shot it you know with cameras in the house and really really tried to put the viewer in the room as opposed to you know when you watch stand-up on tv it always frustrated me that the comic always had to adapt to the medium like you stand here we're going to go to a two shot here we'll go to a one shot there you don't move you're here and, and, and it always frustrated me both watching it and doing it because i was like well why doesn't the fucking medium adapt to a performance that really is being watered down completely. It's by the difference of seeing an animal in the wild or in a zoo. You know, it's I know. So 
we got camera. We told all the camera people you're shooting sports and news. We don't, we're not going to tell you where to be. Catch it. Catch the ball. When you feel that ball flying across the room, fucking catch it. And so the cameramen were, you know, on on wheeled stools, zipping around to get angles. They probably loved just, it because they got to what, be artists. What's that? They probably loved it because they got to be artists, you know, oh, they, and not told well, what to do. When Larry Miller walked into the studio uh, or the, the space before we started shooting, he walked in, you know, he had his jacket over, you know, over his shoulder and, and he just walked in and he saw how we set it up and he saw how the audience was pretty random. In fact, they even, you know, somebody was like, oh, we have to make a pathway for the cameras to get through here. I said, no, you don't. The cameramen have to get around the audience. This is what the situation is. The cameramen have to figure out how to shoot it. Uh, so that, I mean, that's what was really diligent wow, about man. making it not, you know, a, a presentational TV show, really making it an experience. So Larry, Larry Miller walked in and he just sort of goes and sees the quote unquote set, which was really just an art piece. Um, yeah. And he just looks around and he sees the audience and he goes, oh, there's a, there's a lot of comedy in this space. I can feel it already. You know, he just got <laughs> it right away. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. Because I always tell people that, you know, getting comics to be, uh, you know, as real as they can when they yeah. know they're on camera is a lot like trying to get pandas to mate in captivity. There's just a lot of shit that has to be perfect. You know? <laughs> right, 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 right. Ironically, ironically, all of that is stripping away all the stuff that goes into TV production. So they yeah. were just able to sit and, and chat and not care about anything except really get involved in the conversation mm -hmm. it was fun that's awesome man that's cool now you you did a lot of work front of the camera behind the camera and when you first started uh you did a lot of acting um and uh i guess and the long story short or trying to segue in um <laughs> you also did theater and one of the first times um i i kn knew about you is you were doing a play about stand-up comedy Oh, that's right. Oh, wow. You remember that? that I like, saw it, that, Paul. You know I went, that was late 80s. Only it? kidding. I was. I saw you in it. Wow. Yeah. My friend, I wasn't even a comic yet. A friend of mine from college said, hey, I got these tickets to this off-Broadway show. It's about comics. You want to go? Because he knew I had And you were so fucking good that I think it kept wow. me from doing comedy for a few more years. I'm like, that. you were so good in this play, man. You really were. Oh, and thanks. God, I wish you owned a network or something. <laughs> <laughs> One day, Paul. One but day. I remember, what, and I knew who you were. So I had heard, you know, I, I kind of knew who you were, and I walked out going, that guy is unbelievable. And then, you know, your career took off, and I knew it would just based on that. Who was the other actor? I, I don't, I didn't know him, the older man. The older man was Larry Keith, and Larry Keith, Keith was—he um, was kind of a soap opera star. Yeah, soap opera for many, many years. He sadly died a handful of years ago, and uh, I loved him. But the premise of that show was that here's the other thing that's interesting: that play about experiences of stand-up comics was written by Jim Gagan, who was a very successful TV writer but had been a stand-up comic that I started out with in New York at the Improv really? in the 70s. He was in a comedy team called Gagan and Fine. And when I read this script, I was like, oh my God, this feels so real. I loved it. Because, uh, you know, it's, you, you watch a movie like Punchline, I just, you know, all that sort of shit is like, I, I, I was so disappointed there were no but, lockers. But it, <laughs> that, that Bobby, Slayton, Bobby Slayton saw it the day he opened it. He called a friend and he goes, 
I, this is Bobby Slayton. I'm at the uh, the first day of uh, Punchline. Uh, in case you're wondering, I just have to tell you this: the uh, the comedians have lockers. Okay, that's all you need to know. Bye. Click. You know. <laughs> somebody else said after seeing the movie Punchline, somebody else said, "Now I know how cops feel when they go to the movies." Yeah. <laughs> that's it's true. Both, you know, devoid of reality. I mean, in one night, all of a sudden, she's a comic. Yeah, you know, she sucked, and she sucked, and, and a week later, she's on the Tonight Show. Actually, you know, the, that series, uh, the Amazon Prime series, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel? Yes. Um, actually, I think handles it really well. I yeah. think it's, you know, in terms of in terms of coming close to the reality of some of the things you go through as you're developing to become a better and better stand-up, you know, it, it's not it's not completely, mm-hmm. you know, realistic. But I think it did a pretty good job. I know, think consider- the, the movie that captured being a comedian best was The Joker. <laughs> <laughs> Dude. Scary how that is definite. The Joker is definitely one of a spectrum of things in the reality of it. You're you're not wrong. I swear to God, I'm not happy, but you're not fucking wrong. Now, I'm not saying this just because you and Rick were both in it, but I'm dying up here was something that I cannot believe oh, it is right. not continued. You, you were in I'm dying up here. I forgot about that. Yeah, I did a couple of episodes of that, but I got to tell you, uh, first of all. I thought the performances on that show were fantastic. Yeah. Some of the performances just were beautiful and, and, and just rich and interesting. Uh, you know, Andrew Santino so great on the yeah. show. And, and um, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, um, Lucy. Uh, Rick Lassen. great on it. Uh, the kids who played the lead. I've forgotten their names. I, I apologize to them. The guy who um, played the heroin addict was so goddamn good. My wife teases so me all the time. Every Brad time he's Garrett, on TV, Brad Garrett, Brad Garrett was so good. Yeah, every time right? the dudes on TV, but I thought the performances were were very good, fantastic, and I really really flattered to be a part of it because of the performances. But I felt like the series itself, first of all, it had nothing to do with the book. They just basically optioned the book and then you used the title. Right, but the yeah, actual yeah. series has nothing to do with the book, which is a fantastic book. But um, it was just so morose. I mean, yeah. it was so joyless. It was. Yeah, it was. So... It was. Yeah, Which is and, just and like comedy. That, we, yeah. We, yeah. About being in the comedy world when I was young was that even when, you know, you were fucking miserable, something, it came out funny. Yes. And even when you were desperate, psychotic and paranoid and anxious and all of those things that happen when you don't know if you're doing, you know, if you're, if you're ever going to do anything, um, uh, it still was so joyful to be in that world. Mm. And so I felt like they're dying up here really missed that. that in a big way. But mm. thank you for saying that. I appreciate it. That but show. since we were talking about all that you know, <laughs> stuff. But so, so uh, wait, I talked about Punchline. Why did I bring that up? We're talking, we're, we're talking about, oh, your play. Uh, only kidding. Oh, yeah. I don't know why I can't remember shit. <laughs> <laughs> But you, you've done, you did a lot of theater. I, yeah, I studied it. Uh, I studied with the Royal Academy and Dramatic Arts. Yeah, well, that, that's that's pretty impressive. You played theater Romeo. A, a real uh, appeal for me, um, and and I did some of it. But that that play, only kidding. This is what I was talking about. Was the authenticity of it. Uh, because Jim Gagan is such a gifted writer and had been in that, you know, has had that experience you know, starting out as a young stand-up comic at a, you know, shitty club in New York. Um, he he just wrote a great piece. And um, 
it started out as two one-act plays. The first act that then became, it started out as two separate one-acts that then became a three-act play. So the first act, which was originally a, a solo act, um, is about a, an old sort of Borscht Belt kind of comic who's uh, trying to get on you know, late night TV shows. Uh, they're, they're trying to get on The Tonight Show, but he's past his prime. So he hires a young comedy writer to help him become relevant and whatever. And so there's this conflict between the old and the young in that first scene. And then the second one act is about a comedy team that is, you know, one of the guys is kind of, you know, was a real sort of uh, uh, coke head kind of party animal, a guy who was into comedy for, you know, getting pussy and one of those kind of guys, yeah. you know. Rick Adonna. Comedy team. He was in a comedy team with another guy who was much more straight and uh, and you. they end up. And they and, and they're working this club that's owned by like a low level mob guy, you know, and um, and he comes down and he tells them that he's going to get them on the Tonight Show, which in only kidding was called uh, the Buddy King show. He tells them that they'll get him on the show, but they have to sign a long term management contract. And so, the, the you know, the cokehead character, which I played, was like, yes, I'm in. I'm, let's do it. But the more straight laced guy, more level headed guy was like, no. And so they end up splitting up. So then he wrote this third act that really turned those two separate one acts into a real play. The third act was in the green room at the Tonight Show, the Buddy King show, where the comedy writer from the first act is on staff at the TV show. And my former partner is on staff on the writing staff at the TV show. And both the older comic and myself were both scheduled to do the same, the show the same night. And, uh, it's just so it's so interesting how those two things collided the and the characters end up, you know, switching pain and, and, and victory. And it's, it's it was a really, really fun play to do. I mean, it had a real emotional range. So that was fun to do something where I, I get to play a comedian, which is kind of really in my wheelhouse. You know, that's not much of a challenge, but the emotional depth of everything that was going on was really fun. And I really dug that. That's awesome. So, in fact, at one point. Uh, when the show played in New York, you know, it won a couple of theater awards and things, and there was a real buzz around it. It ran for over a year. And um, in a little off-Broadway off house, yeah. I think it started, and then it moved to off-Broadway. Right. Uh, and we were actually playing in the theater upstairs from the Kathy and Mo show. And um, I don't know if you know Kathy and Mo. I, yeah, I, I do. Kathy and Jimmy yeah, and yeah. Mo Gaffney. Mo Gaffney. It was phenomenal, and their show was really buzzy at the time mm -hmm. too. It was, um, and um, uh, we used to go upstairs back and forth to each other's dressing rooms. I ended up on stage in their show one night just because I was bored, and I just walked on stage, <laughs> and they. Uh, so the show had a little heat at the time, and there was some talk about you know people you know picking it up for movie rights and stuff. In fact, I think it had been sold once or twice for movie rights uh, around that time. But Jim Gagan told me the story is like one of the favorite things that ever happened to him. It ultimately never came to pass, but he ended up having a meeting with somebody who really wanted to direct the show, uh, that the movie version of the show. Billy fucking Wilder. What? The movie of Are Jay. you serious? Wow. Can you imagine what that would have been like? I wouldn't have had a shot at it, but it would have been great to see. Oh my God. That <laughs> would be insane. I know, right? So I, yeah. <laughs> 
experience to do. Were you? But then I also did, you, you talked about you know having done a lot of theater and you know I haven't done a lot a lot, but I've done enough to you know to know what I'm doing. And I was lucky enough to play Picasso in Steve Martin's play on, uh, at the um, Promenade Theater in New York. And, um, you know, it had undergone some rewrites. It had opened in a few cities and done, you know, some short runs in some like Chicago and L.A. and a couple other places. And then when it went to New York, uh, Steve was working on rewrites. So he was there for the whole audition process. So I got to work with him for like a month and back and forth on jokes and stuff. And it was great. And um, he working with him was unbelievable. And he couldn't be more supportive. I mean, he would say to us this is so much better than I ever wrote. He goes, I can't thank you guys enough for really breathing unbelievable life into this. I mean, he could not have been more generous. You know how, I mean, the first day I show up and I find out, actually Steve Martin was there during, during one of the audition process. It's like the first time you go in and you're like, holy fuck, Steve Martin's in the room. Right. Right. Hey, Lister. I don't need to even comment on what that means. Right. Uh Holy (laughs) shit. Steve Martin's in the room, you know, watching me do something. Um, and he made it go away like that. He was so supportive and so appreciative and so kind and so he was great. He was great to work with. And subsequently, you know, uh, um, he was uh, hosting a uh, Montreal Just for Laughs gala one night, the ones that they televised. Yeah. And uh, he was hosting one night. And uh, you know, my friend David Feldman, yeah, hilarious. He's one of my Feldman. favorites. Well, he was on the podcast. We had him. He, we had him on the podcast. Oh, great! Because yeah. he's one of the funniest people on the planet. Yeah, <laughs> he was. Stephen Colbert, like 25 years before Stephen Colbert. Yes. Uh, It's true. You know, he used to do a Stephen Colbert act. He used to do a right-wing pundit kind of act. Oh, my God. But dark and sick as fuck. He totally did what Stephen Colbert did like 25, 30 years before. Wow. Um, He also did political comedy in a clown suit. Uh, (laughs) So he won the Uh, match with politicians. (laughs) And he wrote the fucking triumph series triumph the insult comic dog he wrote that series with one with jack brayer which is hilarious if you haven't seen it check it out but anyway so david feldman was uh writing bits for steve martin at this taping and uh you know because he didn't bring that up on the podcast a dickhead we have to love that story well you were gonna go down if if he was gonna bring up everything he did that was cool you'd be there forever but um he uh, (laughs) So, you know, Steve Martin would introduce somebody and then he'd come off and then, you know, David Feldman and he would come up with jokes in the moment for when he goes out, you know, back out next or commenting on the act that he had just introduced after they performed or whatever case it be. And I showed up to say hi to uh, to uh, Feldo and Steve Martin comes backstage and he goes, Provenza, he goes, oh, it's so good to see you. Stick around, see if you can come up with some gags. And so I ended up just hanging out, throwing jokes back and forth to Steve Martin. You know, it was this way. He was great. He That's was so great. cool, man. Wow. Oh, my God. I That's would, great. I would throw my entire career away to have like 10 of your days. <laughs> you know what? The best part, the best part was when we went on national tour with Picasso at the La Pana Gilles uh, in various cities where they needed to juice ticket sales a little bit. They would do a press conference with Steve Martin. And Steve said, I'm only going to do it if I don't have to do it alone. So get me, you know, Provenza, who's playing Picasso, and this fucking brilliant actor named Mark Nelson, who was playing Albert Einstein. Uh, we were sort of the two, you know, main characters of the play. And uh, so he would do all these press conferences with me and, uh, and Mark Nelson. And one of them was in Providence, Rhode Island. 
So we go up to Providence, we do this press conference and he has a limo and he's like, well, why don't you, I'm going back home tonight. So if you guys want to go back to the city, why don't you guys come with me? So I was in this, I don't know, four, three, four hour limo ride with Steve Martin back to the city. During which he got plastered. He was so shit faced. And it was great because you could see that the, the, it doesn't get more controlled circumstances than this. Yeah. <laughs> the car is taking him right to his door, you know, at home. There was nobody there but you know, myself, Mark Nelson, and Steve Martin, no paparazzi. So he fucking cut loose. And he had just gone through this vicious, vicious divorce with his ex-wife, Victoria Tennant. And, um, uh, and he was talking about how he had a whole floor, a whole like top floor penthouse of this, you know, unbelievable building in, in on the west side of Manhattan. And part of the divorce settlement was to split it down the middle. They actually built a wall and turned it into two separate apartments. She had half and he had half. So they shared the wall. Hope he got the right? side with the bathroom. <laughs> so it was so funny. So we get to his house and he's like, Hey, you guys, you guys want to come up and, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll talk some more and have some laughs, maybe play some pool or something. And and Mark Nelson and I are like, you know, we got a show tomorrow and I'm beat. It was like four o'clock in the morning or something after the press conference, and the after party and all that bullshit. And uh, so we said, yeah, it's probably late. And, you know, we probably shouldn't be all that noisy. And he went, are you kidding me? I live a wall separating me and my ex-wife. I want to hear her hearing i want her to hear me having some goddamn fun (laughs) (laughs) it was filled with so much sort of like but at the same time silliness and playfulness it was great it was great great times Uh, did you go up or no no, we ended up not going. Wow. We, had a show. we had a show to do. We had oh, a- you ah. goddamn professional. Jeez. <laughs> Steve Martin. It's his show. When we brought the show to L.A., he brought the whole cast to his home here uh, in L.A. Because, you know, he's Steve Martin, so he's probably got more, way more houses than you and I ever could imagine. <laughs> uh, we had this beautiful home in L.A. Uh, and the amazing thing about being at his house in L.A. was fucking Picassos and Matisse's and, and hoppers on the wall. And, and just like, I mean, it was like going to an art gallery wow. and he said, yeah, I keep the really good stuff in my apartment in New York. Cause they got more security than this house. I'm like, this is the shit. Wow. <laughs> wow. This is the shore house. Yeah. <laughs> when you were at, I think you told me a story. You were in Cincinnati on that tour and you got a yeah. phone call. Yeah. To audition and for got, something? You got a uh, phone call to audition for a show? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. All right, so um, <laughs> we're on the tour. Uh, and we spent, like, you know, at, at most we spent maybe a week in each city. And, I mean, we were in Detroit, Cincinnati, uh, Providence, uh, I think New Haven. And then we were in, like... I don't know. It was like all these, what they call second tier cities. And, um, and so it was a pretty intense tour. It's like, you know, when we weren't working, <clears throat> we were traveling and uh, it was pretty exhausting. Uh, we did, we spent some time in San Francisco, uh, Los Angeles. Anyway. So at one point during this tour, I get a phone call from Aaron Sorkin 
And Aaron Sorkin, I knew kind of sort of from from my theater days in New York. Uh, Our I mean, buddy Richie knows. I, I worked with him at TKTS back in the eighties. Oh, no, yes. Yeah, and he, yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. Oh, funny. Yeah, selling tickets to your well, show. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, maybe. Here's the weird thing is that so many mutual friends of mine, including the guy who played my comedy partner in Only Kidding, Andrew Hill Newman, he and a bunch of other people were always, you know, they would be talking about Aaron Sorkin and how funny he was. And, you know, and they and they go, you don't know Aaron Sorkin? And I go, no, we've never met. And they go, oh, you guys get along like crazy. You guys really need to know each other. And this went on for years and years and years. Uh, and I finally met him once when I was auditioning for something. And, and I wanted to say, like, you know, everybody's been telling me we should hang. And he was the first one who said it. he's like, it's so it's finally so great to meet you. I am so tired of hearing about you from other people. <laughs> and, um, and we kind of hit a lot, off a little bit. And we had, you know, a lot of mutual friends, a lot of mutual experiences from the, you know, um, theater world in New York. And um, anyway, we ended up not I not ended up not getting that project or whatever. So while I'm on tour with Picasso, I get a phone call from Aaron. And he says, listen, I'm working on this new project. And he goes, I kind of wrote one of the parts, like kind of hearing your voice. And uh, I really like to have you in it. So I want you to come out. He goes, you don't have to audition for me or the casting people. He said, but I need you to come and read for the network and John Wells, who's the producer. And I was like, well, I'm, I'm on tour with this thing. Let me see if I can get a couple of days off from the show. I mean, I had an understudy, but they really weren't keen on, on, you know, doing this. So I go, let me see what happens. So, well, it turns out it was the West Wing. And <laughs> I, uh, I go to the producers and I tell them the situation and I go, if I can arrange flights so that I can miss one show and I'm back in time to do the next search. one show that you'd have to use the understudy for. I go, can we make that happen? And they, we, they said, okay. So after a lot of negotiation, they said, okay, it's great. So I schedule my trip. I go out, I read for John Wells with Aaron, blah, blah, blah. I end up not getting it. The role ends up going to um, Rob Lowe. And what I was told, what I was told at the time was the following. And like, who knows if any of this is true, you know, show business, but this is what I was told. And it's the little puppet show in my head that I'm going with. <laughs> uh, um, I told that if you look at the cast of the West Wing, they were all New York theater actors. None of them were stars, you know, Richard Schiff, Allison Janney, nobody on this Bradley Whitford, none of them were stars. They were all unknown theater actors. And the, the network said to Aaron, you got to give us a promotable name somewhere in the show we've cast every other role with unknowns you've got to let us cast the promotable name and that's why they ended up going with rob Lowe. apparently he had some sort of a holding deal or development deal with the network and he was a promotable name so that's why i didn't get that that was the story yeah. that i heard but that's okay it was a great experience yeah. and it was clear to me that aaron sorkin was still looking out for me in some way shape or form he actually ended up putting me back on he ended ended up putting me on a couple of episodes of the show later on in the series um so I'm back on tour with the show. And this is about maybe three or four weeks later, because we were on tour at the show for like seven, eight months or something like that. So about three or four weeks later, I get a phone call from a writer that I had worked with on Northern Exposure. And yeah. he, he was a writer that I really connected with. 
Uh, like he came up to spend time with me because I was introduced into the, the series. And so a lot of the writers didn't know anything about me. And he actually made the effort. He came up and he spent a week in Seattle where we were shooting to get to know me so that he could write some some episodes specifically, you know, around me. And we got along like gangbusters and I loved him and I loved his work. Um, it was David Chase <laughs> who calls and goes, I got this new show on HBO called The Sopranos. And I think you'd be perfect for one of the parts. I'd love for you to come in and audition. So I go to the producers and I go, um, remember that night off? I told you, they wouldn't let me, they wouldn't let me go. Oh, wow. Yeah, I know. What part do you know? I don't. Oh, shit. But unlike the West Wing story, by the time the Soprano story rolled around, I was like, I don't even want to fuck. <laughs> now you know I was on The Sopranos I did an episode And when I went in On an audition For my part Chase was in the room And it wasn't A huge part And And he was giving me Notes And I mean I was so impressed By that This guy was in On everything With that show man It was just amazing To see that He was great When I was on Northern Exposure He was just great And, and, and the episodes That he wrote specifically for me were and this is why he came up to hang out with me because one of the distinctions that were making that they were uh making to separate my character from rob rob uh, morrow's character rob morrow was a new york jew who ends up in alaska and this thing and he and he doesn't want to be there right right yeah and he's miserable while he's there and etc cetera, etc cetera. when they brought my character in it, it was a married couple and i was somebody who had been you know, in um, it been in the the field for a long time, and I wanted to go to Alaska. Like I had this romantic idea of going to the wilderness and, and helping people and all that sort of stuff. And I end up miserable. So it was kind of the flip side. Mm -hmm. But one of the differentiating characters that he was a New York Jew, and I was Italian. So David Chase said we should use this, and um, uh, the name of the character was Capra, Doctor Capra. Uh, so he goes, we should use this, and to really you know magnify that identity so he came up and he ended up writing a couple of episodes about um uh a little italy there's a little italy in the little town of sicily alaska <laughs> but it's two houses <laughs> that, that live next door to each other and they both have restaurants in their basements right? <laughs> <laughs> but they're but they're but they're in a feud oh <laughs> of course they are i end up discovering little italy which is two houses and i can't believe that they're in a feud they're the only two italian restaurants in town <laughs> it's in a feud this is crazy so i have a sit down with the heads of the family <laughs> they're just feeling brilliant and it was great and actually one of the guys mm. was played by another stand-up comic named joe napoti i don't know if you guys know joe you no. before you but a great comic, and uh, I hadn't seen him in 10 million years, and all of a sudden we're fucking hanging out on Northern Exposure. It was great. Uh, <laughs> so, Dave, you know, uh, it, was, it was like if, if he asked me to come and, you know, serve drinks at his daughter's wedding, I would have done it because he was so good. He was right. so good. And so That's so awesome. All right, before we let you cut out, I what just. Other, what other things of mine would you like to know about? I, dude, I, I see, you're saying failure. I, I failure? Dream. Yeah. I dream of being you. Like yeah, that to man. me is like, I would rather be you than Jerry Seinfeld. The most successful you, failures you are heard. like, uh, yeah. you're the most artistic stand-up comedian I know. No offense. Oh, 
Dude, you I'm, offense, I'm, I'm right here, Bye. Mark. But like anything you do, I, think I could sleep Thank at night you, knowing I was doing the things you do. I look at a lot of very well, you know, successful, is a lot financial of, a lot of successful. Stuff that I'm working on on my own right now. Uh, and this all kind of started with the aristocrats and then it went to the green room and set list and a whole bunch of this and some of the stuff I'm working on now, uh, all my own stuff on spec, you know, um, uh, I decided at some point that, you know, I'm never going to be somebody like a, you know, a Carlin or a Chappelle or, you know, somebody who like has a real impact on the art form. That's just not my destiny, you know, but you you have an impact with the artist. Hang on. So I just said to myself, what can I do to sort of, you know, make a difference in the world of comedy in some way, shape or form? And that's when I realized all I really have to do is appeal to me at the age of 14. So everything that I start to do, <laughs> it's like, how would this speak to me if I was 14 years old and I found this? Yeah. And that's driven everything from the aristocrats on. Interesting. I, I mean, I, I'm not kissing your ass because you're the guest, but I'm telling you at night. You have to be able to sleep better than any other comedian, knowing the work you've put out there, and whether it's a financial success or thinking, not. Since I stopped thinking about a career as something linear, and stopped caring about all that, um, two things have happened. One, I'm broke. Uh, two, <laughs> two uh, I've done some of the work. I'm the work. I'm you know, some of the work I've done is the, the most proudest I've been of anything in my life. So I feel like. I can die happy just saying, you know what? If I were 15 and I found my shit, I'd be like, God damn, that's cool. And that's that's really what lets me uh, okay with being broke. Dude, if I just had the Steve Martin story, I'd be happy. I know. <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> I know. Would somebody pay me just to hear the stories of all my crushes? I, I'm telling that? you, if I ever if if I ever pop. Provenza, you will be paid just to just. Hey, come here and tell a story. Come here and tell a story. <laughs> There's like five people, uh, comics that I'm just. Everything they do is so amazing and and uh, artistic, and it's more than just. It, it's. I don't like comics that define success on financial gain because there's a lot yeah. of really big TV yeah, shows I, out there. I think yeah. are shit. Yeah. yeah, you know, there's some people who are lucky enough to have financial gain and really just stay true to their own creative yeah. impulse, which is uh, rare. But yeah, I know what you're saying, and that's that's the thing. It's like I'm not, I'm not, I don't regret any of my choices. Uh, like I said, man, to to 15 year old me, I'm a fucking hero. Yeah. But um, um, Patrice O'Neill was somebody who was like that too. Patrice and yeah. I were were really close uh in fact getting him to do the green room was really i mean he really that's a real sign of trust and respect right there but sitting he wouldn't do sitting in a room with the two of you i would be i would pay a lot of money to be there well you think you know uh and by the way look forward for the uh uh to the release of the patrice o'neill documentary that's coming out on uh i think comedy central's doing it uh, but they've actually licensed some of the footage from the green room and some of the stuff we shot with Patrice when I was doing the book Satiristas, his yeah. interviews from that, uh, because most of the stuff where Patrice is being interviewed is all really sort of confrontational, like Opie and Anthony and, uh, you know, um, uh, Tough Crowd with Colin Quinn, yeah. uuh, you know, which green room had been compared to just in terms of, oh, it's a room full of comedians mm-hmm. sitting and talking. But the real difference was that, that on Tough Crowd, it was designed to be confrontational. That yeah. was the whole point of it. 
was to get people into fights and arguments. Yeah. Whereas on the green room, we were really just coming from love. We really just wanted everybody just to hang out. I, I don't turn, like aggressive comedy as much. I, it's it's great for what it is. It's great. And it's yeah. great. And largely, you know, a lot of the stuff that I really love involves Patrice. But that was that, the thing was that there was very little footage of Patrice that wasn't really confrontational. But my experience of Patrice, we always had like really, really heavy, in-depth conversations that were tremendously respectful in both directions. You know, he never minimized a question or an idea that I had. If he would confront it. He would say, you could not be more wrong. And he would give me his thing and i would say i'm confused about this and he'd say all right i'm gonna explain it to you you know and it was really articulate and i i always felt respected by patrice whereas his kind of uh, the the popular persona of patrice was that he was a big argumentative bully who didn't want to hear shit from anybody i never had that experience with him um and so in my interviews with him for satiristas he talks about he goes I don't like these motherfuckers coming up after show talking about how much money they made, how many T-shirts or CDs they sold. Fuck that bullshit. If that's what you're about, I, don't come up and talk to me, motherfucker. And I think that's one of the reasons why I love Patrice so much and Patrice loved me so much is because he was just like exactly what you're talking about. It's like, is there anything? Do you have any respect for this art form other than how much money you can make yeah. in it? Yeah. You know, and that just, I automatically fell in love with him, you know. Oh my God! Yeah. yeah. Having said that, we want to thank our sponsors for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you have sponsors? No. 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 Oh. <laughs> yes, Ben and Jerry. Are... <laughs> it's just Ben. Just Ben. Yeah. We couldn't get Jerry. Well, Jameson, but I mean, they're not giving us anything except for a buzz. But I mean, so I guess they're kind of a sponsor. It's not nothing, my friend. (laughs) Well, I'm working on a thing right now with my buddy Dan Pastanak, who's a brilliant cat. I just Uh, brought his name uh, up today. I I literally, just before we went on air, I go, I wonder if I should reach out to Dan to see if he would come on the podcast sometime. Oh, absolutely. He's brilliant. And he's the guy of all the people in the world that I learned about people in comedy that I didn't know. It's Dan Pastanak. He introduces me to like old people, old greats, in, in, like important characters that are really obscure that I never heard of. And he yeah. introduces me to like some of the hippest, you know, coolest young comics that I hadn't found yet. And, uh, and, and he's amazing. And, you know, he also helped get Portlandia on TV. He was a, yeah. a development executive at, um, uh, whatchamacallit, what's that station? Uh, that Portlandia's IFC. on, whatever that is. IFC. What was it, IFC. FX? Yeah. IFC. Uh, uh, you know, he he did a, um, an online series with Maria Bamford and Scott Ackerman. He helped he, he helped get um, you know Comedy Bang Bang uh, moving, and uh, he's just the real deal. And I love him dearly. But he and I are working on a project now. It's a six two-hour episodes each, six two-hour episode series on the '80s comedy boom. Oh and, wow! Um, yeah, we got interviews with. You know some of the classics. I mean, everybody from you know, Paul Reiser, Louis Anderson, and Bob Saget, to Judy Tenuta, and uh, Barry Katz, and all these people that were, you know, if you had need a PA, to call me. Just being around, I would fucking die yeah. listening to those stories. Yeah, you'll totally love it, man. It's really great, and and, and um, uh, so I'm working with him on that now again. 
for me at 15. <laughs> I was, I, I were in Atlanta and Dan started talking to Marshall and I was, you know, Marshall's my boy. I was hanging out with him. And as soon as Dan started talking, I didn't even know who he was. He just walked in and goes, Hey Marshall, I want to talk to you blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden I just, I couldn't quit watching him and listening to his stories. I was like, this guy knows a lot of shit and I just yeah. need this. I want to be a sponge. And just soak up anything he has to say, and I just kind of followed him around the uh, the the festival, wanting to hear stories. You know what? One of the great things that I love about Dan Pastanek is that he loves all kinds of comedy. Like he was really, really close with Milton Berle before he died, and <laughs> Jonathan Winters. He was really close to Jonathan Winters. In fact, he introduced me to Jonathan Winters, and wow. you know, Jonathan was living in Santa Barbara. And his wife had just died and he was really lonely. Or actually, I think the first time I met him, his wife hadn't died yet. But um, uh, I found out that, you know, every once in a while, people like uh, Richard Lewis or Bob Shaw, or a couple other comics, would they would just go up to hang with Jonathan because he needed stimulation. He needed people to play with because he was really isolated up there in, in Santa Barbara. And um, so Dan brought me up there and I was like, we got to bring Rick Overton. Oh so God, a couple yeah. of later... We went up to Jonathan's house with Rick Overton. And that's why I ended up having Jonathan on the green room with Rick Overton because he loved Rick Overton. Wow. Well, they're the they're same brain. Different. They're the same. They are. They have the same DNA. And, <laughs> and Jonathan got it right away. And at one point, I remember when we were leaving, uh, you know, we were getting into the car and, and, and Jonathan, he looked like he was eight years old. He just had this beautiful childlike thing i said and he was looking up at rick overton going do 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 do, do that sean connery thing again do that <laughs> sean connery. fucking beautiful it's beautiful and uh and so overton became a, a real playmate for jonathan's uh but so dan is there, you know he was really tight i mean in fact like dan basically put together uh jonathan's memorial you know wow. and um wow. but he also was the first guy to give Marie to give Maria Bamford a show, and the first guy to say to Scott Ackerman, "You should be doing this on television." And you know, he's like, it really spans, you know, the the huge breadth of comedy. Um, um, but he told me a story that is so fucking funny that he was at Milton Berle's funeral, and he's sitting in the. Uh, he should tell you the story, but I'm going to tell you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to steal this from him. <laughs> He was sitting behind uh, Barbara Sinatra, Frank's widow, and Buddy Hackett comes over to say something to Barbara Sinatra. Dan's sitting like right behind her. And he says, this is one of the funniest things in the world. It was so hard for me not to completely lose it. And Buddy Hackett takes uh, uh, Barbara Sinatra's hand uh, and goes, and this is at Milton Berle's funeral. And he goes, Barbara, it's lovely to see you. He goes, Next time we meet, I hope it's under much better circumstances, like at Jack Carter's funeral. <laughs> Let's go out on that. Yes. That's drinks, jokes, and storytelling. Thank oh you. My, wait, that's a Dan Pasternak story. It's all right. Dude, he's got a million of Thanks for listening. Please subscribe, rate, and review us on YouTube or wherever you podcast. We also would appreciate spreading the word. Let anyone who may enjoy us know about us. We appreciate the plug.
Special thanks to a shared universe studios, Realize Records, and why not for the great music. <laughs> <laughs>